reminded that next week we are returning to our studies in Luke, uh, returning to Luke chapter 13, picking up at verse 22, if you want to do a little bit of uh, refreshing this week as we prepare for our studies together in this fall. Uh, But tonight, the last of the Psalms of Ascent, uh, this one a Psalm of David on the theme of unity, a beautiful, uh, short, pungent Psalm, uh, poignant uh, with uh, some of the, uh, the savor of the gospel here. And so won't you uh, please join me as we pray, as we seek God's blessing on the reading and study of his word. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would make us receptive for what you have for us here. Teach us what it means to be united together in one body under Christ. Teach us, O Lord, to rejoice in our Savior. So encourage one another and stir one another up to love and to good works. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now please join me, stand as we pay attention to the reading of God's holy word in Psalm 133. A song of ascent of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. You may be seated. In the fall of 1635, 12 English families pressed into the woods west of Boston to establish the first inland colony Uh, or the first inland settlement, rather, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They were led, as many of you already know the story, uh, by a Calvinistic uh, congregational pastor by the name of Peter Bulkley. And they tramped 13 miles through the woods to a tract of land known to the Algonquins as Musketaquid. It was pasture land. It uh, It was river land. It was trading land. And there, these 12 families negotiated the peaceful purchase of six square miles in exchange for wampum, for hatchets, for hoes, for knives, and for cloth. And at the end of it all, the the settlers were so elated at God's peaceful provision of a new home for them that they named their new community Concord. If you're from here, it's Concord. But Concord, a place of peace, and unity, a place of agreement between brothers and sisters in the Lord. Well, today, Concord isn't known. It's not famous for its sense of unity. Not that Concord is is necessarily divided, just that there are so many other more impressive things that have happened in Concord that the the idea of a sort of uh, wonderful place of, of Christian fellowship and unity, well, it's been pushed into obscurity. Nowadays, uh, Concord is known more for its battles and its battlefields, more for its philosophers. Concord is known more for its grape juice than it is for its Christian unity. I suppose that's how the concept of Concord exists in our minds. Unity is a blessing that we notice far more often when it is missing than when it's present. It's far more interesting, isn't it, to mark the history of our nation in terms of wars and struggles and divisions than it is to mark the seasons of harmony. 
same tends to be true in our families. And that knockdown, drag out uh, disagreement that you had maybe 15 years ago is often more fresh in your memory than the long stretches of peace together. It's certainly true in the church. We tend to punctuate the history, and you can ask uh, Andrew Davis, who has recently been studying the history of the church for a presbytery exam. We tend to punctuate the history of God's people through heresies and martyrs and movements and denominations and schisms more than anything else. Those are the raw nerves that are easy to remember because they won't let us forget that they're there. But our psalm today is calling us to take a different approach. Psalm 133 is calling us to, to consider the overlooked blessing of Christian unity. It's calling us to be thankful for unity. It's calling us to pursue unity. Unity perhaps in, in our nation, in our society. Unity perhaps in our families, but more than anything else, this psalm is calling us to pursue unity among the church of Christ. How good it is and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. How good it is when God's people pursue concord with one another. Well, this psalm is all about the positive blessing that unity is among God's people. And in these, these three short verses, we find several aspects of this blessing and what it means to God's people. For one, unity is the kind of thing that makes God's people pleasant. It makes God's people pleasant. Now, now, here we have, I think, a warning in verse 1 for those of us stuffy intellectual Christians not to overcomplicate the idea of Christian unity. How good it is and pleasant when brothers live together in unity. That's the summary. Unity is pleasant. It's enjoyable. It makes Christian community attractive and, and refreshing. Unity is the kind of thing that you've got to experience to appreciate. And so, yes, we like our refined theological arguments. We like our proof texts. We like dragging in all the freight of our theology to whatever text it is that we're studying, and we like our cross-references, and there's time for all that, and we'll do a little bit of that tonight. But here at the beginning, can we just all agree together that Christian unity is just plain enjoyable? It makes God's people pleasant. And this psalm is about enjoying the unity of God's people together. It's about the pleasure that we feel when we come into a place where brothers and sisters are gathered together and we know that we're at peace with them and they're at peace with us. This psalm is about the beauty of knowing that there are other people in the world who are committed to the same Lord that we are committed to who have also been saved from sin by the blood of Christ, like we have been saved from sin by the blood of Christ. This psalm is about the joy of coming out of a world that Jesus promised will hate us just as it hated him. We come out of a world where Christians at best are the oddballs. It's about the joy of coming in here together and knowing that if we're odd, at least we're odd together. And we can breathe easy. And we can receive one another and we can bask in the fellowship of people that we don't have to be on our guard against. Unity makes God's people pleasant. That's part of the reason for this analogy of the, of the precious oil that's poured out upon the head of Aaron. Aaron, you know, was the prototypical priest. He was the first priest, the first high priest for the nation of Israel after they came out uh, of Egypt. 
He was the first man to be ordained by the use of a sacred oil that God commanded in Exodus chapter 30. And there in Exodus chapter 30, God gives a recipe almost, a formula for this this sacred oil set apart only for temple use. And it it says there uh, that it's an oil that's mixed like a perfume. It's oil that's made with myrrh and cinnamon and cane and spices. And that means that if you had been there on the day that Aaron was anointed, when he was ordained with this oil, the very first thing you would have noticed is the fragrance. What does the blessing of God smell like? (laughs) It smelled like that perfume, whatever it was. It was warm and it was attractive and it was a blessing, this pleasing aroma. Unity, says David, works like that. It makes the community of God's people attractive, inviting, not just to those who are on the inside, but also to those who are on the outside. Kingdom of priests, remember. Intercessors, go-betweens. And would that we were known for how attractive and inviting because of the unity that we have in our churches. Would that we would be known outside the walls of Christian community as those who are Jesus' disciples, and you know it because of the love that they have for one another. That's what Jesus said. All men will know that you're mine because of the way that you love one another, because of of your unity together, because of your forbearance for one another, because of your agreement in the gospel together. Would that that was how we were known in the world. It's how we're supposed to be known. Unity makes God's people pleasant. We also find that unity equips the entire body. Again, Aaron is our example here, and we we see the oil uh, in this verse. Verse 2, running down his head, running down his beard, running down onto his robes. Unity is a trickle-down blessing. It is poured out at God's command, and it seeks the lowest point, And it changes and it influences everything it touches on the way down. You see it in families, don't you? And when parents are divided, the whole family can withstand stress that would boggle your mind. When the parents are not united, well, then the smallest difficulties can become a disaster. And children instinctively know this. Which is why in most families, if you want something from mom or dad, divide and conquer is the name of the game. Sadly, it sometimes happens that way in churches as well. How many churches have you witnessed falling apart, not because of some outrageous catastrophe, not because of some scandal, but simply because the leadership of a church could not be in unity and agreement for normal, everyday decisions of ministry? And they bite and they devour one another because they're not united. And on the other hand, where ministry leaders, where where elders and deacons, where teachers, where they're agreed, even if they don't agree in every specific little detail, but where they're unified, it fosters a church that is fortified, that is prepared for the task that the Lord has given to the church of proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. What's the point of including Aaron's robes, by the way? Not just his head, not just his beard, but his robes. It's not just an image of the abundance of the oil, though that is pictured here, the sort of overflowing goodness of of God, more than you could imagine your cup runneth over. 
the oil running down. There, there's something there about abundance, but it's also about the, the way the oil flows down, and it sets apart both the priest and his robes for ministry. In fact, back in Exodus chapter 29, where God describes how the priest ought to be ordained for their service, it explicitly says in Exodus 29, 21, that the people were to take the sacred oil and sprinkle, sprinkle it on Aaron and sprinkle it on his garments. In case there wasn't enough to run down onto his garments, make sure you get some on the garments. Why? So that he and his garments shall be holy. There's a unifying aspect to these things. There's an element of equipping in view here. Without the priestly robes, Aaron was unprepared. Of course, without the priest, the robes were just cloth. They, they were just bundles of linen. Put them together and, and bless them by the Lord, and Aaron becomes a priest who is dressed for the duty of representing God to the people and the people to their God. And unity in the church is like that. It binds us together. It, it equips us for what God has called us to do. Of course, in the New Testament, the image is not of a priest and his robes, but of a head and a body. Many members joined together. Many members, each doing different things, but joined together, working for the same purpose, united so that Christ might be glorified among us. That's how God equips his people. He gives them unity. We find, thirdly, that, that unity is a gift that comes from the Lord himself. Down into verse 3, unity, it says, is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. A little geography lesson. Hermon, uh, Hermon is the very high and very fertile mountain way in the farther northern reaches, the farthest northern reaches of Israelite-held territory at this time. It's the only mountain, even today, uh, in Palestine, in that area of the Middle East, that's high enough to be capped with snow most of the year round. It also begins uh, the Lebanon mountains where the cedars grew like skyscrapers. And so in the minds of an Israelite, Hermon was a land of, of perpetual flourishing. The highest point, and so all of the moist air that swept out off of the Mediterranean gathered there on the top of the mountain in dense, thick clouds, and it watered the mountain, and it, and it gathered in this heavy dew that that sank down and trickled down and even gathered into the streams that flowed down and formed the River Jordan. It came from Hermon. By comparison to Jordan, I'm sorry, by comparison to Hermon, uh, Zion was a pile of rocks. It was relatively low, it was very dry, and it was completely dependent on whatever moisture it could get, even the little bit of moisture that it would get every morning from the dew. So in that way, you, you see an unlikely parallel here between these two very different mountains. One of them was high, one was very far away, the other was pretty low, and it was right there at the heart of God's people, right in the capital city. And yet they both drank the same gift of the Lord coming down. Coming down every morning to give life, coming down to give, to give hope, to give, uh, to give freshness, to give the promise of a harvest. In fact, the idea there of, of that downward motion of the gift is intentional. In verse 3, in our ESVs, it, it uses the word falls. The dew falls on the mountains of Zion. Actually, that's the same exact verb that shows up twice in verse 2. 
where we read that the oil flows, it runs down the beard, it runs down onto the garments, the dew runs down, it falls down onto the mountains of Zion. You see this picture here. Unity is a heavenly blessing. Unity, like all good gifts, comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shifting shadow or variation due to change. Unity is not something that we gather up and achieve for ourselves. Unity comes from God himself. It's his blessing. And that means that if it is the sovereign Lord who's the one who's able to bestow unity, well, then we shouldn't be ashamed to expect it in the most unlikely of places, should we? The Lord who waters fertile Hermon is the same Lord who nourishes rocky Zion. The Lord who blesses that that church over there that always seems to be doing well, that seems to be flourishing all the time, that always seems to have their act together and so many ministries and so many people coming and they just look like their ministry is, is blowing up and expanding in so many different ways. Well, the Lord who gives them unity is able to give unity to any small, fractured bunch of sinners gathered together in his name as well. It's his gift. He bestows it on those whom he desires. The Lord who supplies all our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus is the same Lord who is able to heal the divisions in his church, in your marriage, in our nation. You see, unity is God's gift so that we could be able to hope in what he can do among us. This is the blessing of, of Christian unity in these verses. Psalm 133 is teaching us that unity is a gift of God. That it comes down to make his people pleasant, to equip them for the work of ministry that he's calling them to. But if all of that is true, and I think it is, I think it's worth asking ourselves, why does unity seem so difficult all the time? <laughs> Eugene Peterson points out, actually, the first account in the Bible of brothers living together. You're chuckling because you already know. It becomes a crime scene halfway through Genesis chapter 4. And Cain kills his brother because of an interpersonal conflict. And you, you take that same theme and you trace it throughout the rest of the, the scriptures and and the stories are pretty much the same. Jacob and Esau. Joseph and his brothers. David's writing this psalm. What about Amnon and Absalom? What about the brothers of Jesus who, who think that he's off his rocker and so they try to pull him away from his messianic ministry before he does anything they're worried will, uh, will be regrettable later? It seems to be the rule rather than the exception that brothers, whether they're biological brothers, whether they're spiritual brothers, doesn't really matter. Brothers seem to find it easier to divide than they do to unite. So why is that? That's not really a difficult question, is it? <laughs> we know the answer. We know the answer deep down in our heart of hearts. What's the answer that we give when somebody asks us, why is unity so difficult? Why is there so much division among us? And the answer that we give is them. <laughs> it's their fault. It's him or it's her, or it's those people, or it's that party. Why can't you get on the same page in your marriage? Well, it's him and his unreasonable demands. It's her and the fact that she can never see my side of the story. Where do the divisions come from that are destroying our American society right now? Well, it's that group. It's their terrible ideology, and if only they could get their act together, if only they'd vote in the right way, if only they would move to Canada, we would be just fine, thank you very much. 
It's them. What about in the church? Why do some churches seem to be consumed by endless squabbles over things that are really meaningless over and over and over again? Why does the saying seem to ring true when we hear it that Sunday in America is the most segregated day of the week? Why is it that Presbyterians split off to form a new, more faithful denomination oh, about every 40 years or so? Far too often, there are good reasons for separation, obviously, but far too often the answer we give is that it's because of the songs that they like to sing. It's because of their interpretation of some debatable doctrine or even the fact that they might not look exactly like we do. Folks, don't get me wrong. There, there is such a thing as a bad idea in the church and in society. There are heresies that need to be rebuked. There are sins that need to be dealt with. There are injustices that need to be righted rather than simply overlooked in the sake of pursuing some sort of shallow unity. But so long as we look at one another as the primary obstacle of achieving unity, we're never going to find what it is we think we're looking for. James chapter 4 gives us the real answer. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, that you desire and do not have, and so you murder? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In every biblical example we have talked about, every, every hypothetical division in our homes, in our churches, in our nation, at some level can be boiled down to that answer. What's the real source of disunity among brothers and sisters? It's sin. Our sin. It's our own sin, like Cain's, that, that crouches outside our door and desires to master us. And that means that the only real answer, the only permanent fix for the problem of disunity is to be found in the God who's able to do away with our sin. That's the secret of unity. Verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there, that is in Zion, not in unity, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The Lord has a blessing for his people, and, and it is refreshing and as, as empowering, as wonderful as it might be, the primary blessing that David has in mind is not Christian unity. The blessing he's thinking of is life, eternal life. Life forevermore in the presence of the Lord. It's the blessing that, that's commanded by the God who meets his people on the mountain of his presence. Don't forget that this is a psalm of ascent, that this is being sung by pilgrims who are on the way up to Zion, up to Jerusalem for the yearly feast. And there's probably a good chance that David wrote this psalm, maybe while he was within the walls of the holy city, while he's watching the people gather for the yearly festivals and for the feasts and for the worship. And if you had been there, you would have seen what he saw. You would have seen people from every tribe in Israel making their way up the slopes of Zion like living rivers. You would have seen people from every walk of life. You would have seen merchants, and you would have seen shepherds. You would have seen farmers, and you would have seen fishermen. You would have seen teachers and tent makers, people from every walk of life, every corner of the kingdom, coming together to rehearse the story of God's covenant promises. 
They went up to see the sons of Aaron, to see them sprinkle blood, and to hear them sound the horn and proclaim their sins forgiven through sacrifice. They went up to anticipate the salvation of God through the Savior that he was to send into the world. And I'll bet if you asked those travelers, if you, if you stopped one of them and said, why is it that you've made it all this way? Why trek through the, the wilderness, maybe three days, maybe a week to get here? Why would you leave your homestead, perhaps to be invaded by somebody else while you're away? Why would you do that? Why would you come all the way up here? Is it because you wanted to experience unity? Is because you wanted to show a wonderful example of solidarity among the nation? They would have said, no, absolutely not. We came here to worship. That's why we're here. We came to experience and to rejoice in the presence of God. And yet somehow, as they gathered together and their hearts were fixed on worshiping the living God, well, unity filled their assembly. In fact, the more they were focused on worship the more their unity became an unavoidable reality. Because as they gathered in the courtyards of the tabernacle there, each Israelite was an equal before the holiness of God. The beggar standing next to the mighty man, at the same time, both of them equally needy, equally beloved for the sake of God's covenant. See, unity wasn't the reason they had gone to Zion. It was the conclusion, the unavoidable conclusion of being there together. It was an addition, a, a blessed extra. It was like going up to the priest to declare your sins and to offer your sacrifice. And you're ready for the violence that you're going to see as, after you go up. And you, you have to put your hand on the head of the goat and you have to proclaim your sins. And you watch as the knife slices and the blood pours out and you can hear all of it. And you're ready for all that. What you're not ready for is the fragrance of God's blessing in the priest who meets you. It wasn't why you went, but it was a wonderful blessing when you got there, wasn't it? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that our community with one another does not consist in our piety, who we are individually as Christians. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us all of us, as the case may be, in a, in a larger gathering. Well, Paul takes that same idea and he puts it in different language in Ephesians chapter 2. There in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 14, he's, he's writing about Jews and Gentiles together, and he writes that Christ Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one, who has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's the secret of unity. The secret of unity is that none of us comes to Jesus hoping to be united to other Christians. We come for salvation. We come to have our sins forgiven. We come to be invited in and to be made his people. And when we come, the God of peace adds the blessing of other believers, whether you like it or not. <laughs> you don't actually have a choice in the matter, by the way. The reality is that believers in Christ are united 
And so the question for believers is not, will you be united, but how will you live as a united member of Christ's body? It's an added extra. It's not the reason that we come, but the blessing that he gives. It also means that unity in the church doesn't show up when we pursue unity at all costs. It doesn't show up when we make our list of all the little things that separate us and another uh, body, another church, another communion of, of believers. It doesn't show up as we start to work through that list and say, here's where you can compromise, here's where I can compromise, here's where we can work things out together. It is rather the unavoidable byproduct of brothers and sisters worshiping Christ together. That means the way to seek unity is to seek the Lord together, to focus more on Christ than we do on ourselves, more on Christ than we do on our pet preferences, more on Christ than we do on our selfish schemes and the million little things that might otherwise divide us. You can bet that the same secret holds true for the unity that we need in the rest of our lives. We're coming up on November. What will be the answer to the divisions tearing through our society right now? It will not be a politician. It will not be legislation. It will not be some social media marketing campaign designed to convince us of the attainability of the American dream. And if we can all imagine the same things and pursue the same things together for the better of our country and for the, the increasing of our wealth and for a society where that's not the answer because our problems are deeper than that. Our problems run deeper than political party lines. The American problem is a sin problem. And the only solution is unity in Christ who gives salvation to his people. Maybe the same is true in your marriage. You focused on finding the right counselor or reading the right book or having the right conversation, pursuing unity at all costs, and you've forgotten in the meantime what it is to worship together, to speak of Christ and of his love, to focus on him and not on yourselves. Maybe the same is true in your marriage in your family, in your school, or your neighborhood. It's certainly true in the church. Behold, how good it is and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. But that unity comes as we seek the Lord together. I'm so thankful that this is a church that seeks the Lord together. This is now an audible. This is a little bit off script. And so who knows where it may go, but you all remember last year about this time when we were talking about building and we were imagining scenarios that none of us could possibly have imagined. And I want you to hold me to account. What did you hear me praying for every week? Maybe a building. Certainly unity. You see, the church that is unified can make it through just about anything as the Lord leads them, as the Lord gives that blessing to his people. By his blessing, we're not in the place that we thought we would be a year ago. Nobody could have imagined. But we're together. We're seeking the Lord together. By his grace, we're unified. And no matter whether next week or five months from now or three years from now, we're worshiping here or somebody else's church or our own church building, whether or not we ever get these masks off our face, says the only man not wearing a mask in the room. We're unified 
because we're seeking the Lord together. May the Lord keep us doing exactly that, looking to him, not to ourselves, not to our, our list of things that would make one another acceptable in our eyes. May he keep us seeking him, and may he keep us unified in his name. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the unity that you have given this church. That is your blessing as we have come to worship you. You've shown yourself good and faithful and kind to your people. Oh Lord, we praise you for that. It's not our work, it's not our doing, but it's your blessing, your gift. Make us thankful for it, O oh Lord, and keep us pursuing you and, and seeking you together for the good of your name among your people and for your glory, we pray. Amen.